Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to another episode of Willy Willy Harry Stee. And that's all you're going to get of the rhyme in this episode because this is another general overview. We're getting away from the monarchs and looking at what life was like for the ordinary British people. We had the wonderful Susanna Lipscomb on recently talking us through the Tudors. And today I'm delighted to say we have the return of Ian Mortimer to look at how things changed with the Stuarts. And Ian joined us many episodes ago for a look at life in the Middle Ages, based around his fantastic book, A Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England. But that's not the only Time Traveller's Guide that he's written. He's also done A Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England and The Time Traveller's Guide to Restoration Britain, which is the period we'll be looking at in this episode. So, Ian, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. And can I just say that what's great about having you on, Ian, is that you're a generalist. So you're able to step back and give us a wider overview of history for so many historians. And this is not to denigrate them in any way. But most are specialists who know a staggering amount about one particular part of history, but not necessarily so much about the rest of it. And as this series is trying to give a general view of a thousand years of British history through the lens of its monarchs, it's very useful to have historians like you join me every now and then. You'd be amused. Um, when I worked at the Royal Commission on Historical Manuscripts in the 1990s, uh, a question came up. I, I can't remember the exact nature of it, but it concerned something that happened in the mid-1630s. And I thought... I know, I'll go and ask a fellow of the Society of Antiquities who works upstairs, member of the commission, been here for 30 years. I asked her the question. She said, oh, no, no, no. I'm a 1640s historian, not a 1630s one. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and I suppose I'm about the complete opposite of that, trying to cover a thousand years. And I'm always really scared... I'm going to get things wrong or get things muddled up or, or that I'll miss out hugely important things thinking, oh, that's a bit dull. I won't go into that. And then finding out that actually that was the most important thing that had happened in some monarch's reign. Oh, but everybody has that. I mean, from a historical point of view, especially when you're writing across several centuries, you never know when you're going to end up contradicting yourself. But you either live in fear of these things or you, you master them you, or you master yourself getting past them and the only way to do history is to be bold you know you you can't you can't be timid and try and get everything right because you'll never write a damn word well let's be bold time travelers then like doctor who and his assistant but um, i mean the other thing i find as i move through history 
there's just so much more information about each monarch. There's so much stuff you can talk about. It's, it's trying to find the bit that is kind of most telling. Is, is I found that with my time traveller's guide as well. It's much easier to write about a society that's got three or four million people in it than it is one that's got 16 million people in it. There's just so much more variety and your generalisations have to be qualified so much more when you're talking about a much bigger society. Well, let's take that as a starting point. I mean, can we look at why there was this huge growth in population? I mean, I suppose it must have been at its lowest after the first major outbreak of the Black Death during Edward III's reign. It's actually interesting what happened before the Black Death to understand what happened afterwards. The population really grew rapidly at the end of the 12th century, beginning of the 13th century. No, almost as rapidly as it did in the Industrial Revolution. And it carried on until about 1290s, when what we call the medieval warm period came to an end. And there was a sudden decline. So there was about 15% of the population died off between 1290 and 1325 due to famine, animal diseases, terrible weather in the 1315-1316 period. And so it sank down and then it grew up again. And it was growing fast again just before the Black Death. And it reached this sort of plateau, this glass ceiling of about 5 million people. Um, and that, that's the important bit you need to remember. It reached this sort of plateau. Black Death killed between 40 and 45% of the population almost overnight. Continued to kill people for the next 300 years. But the population reached its lowest level around 1450. And it's from 1450, 1460, it started growing again. So throughout the Tudor period, the population was growing significantly, so that we had loads of people by Elizabeth's reign who were homeless. Uh, there were 700 homeless people in Stratford-on-Avon. There was estimated to be 30,000 in London. And the population started growing more and more and more until the, uh, the, the mid-17th century. And then it started to decline with the, what we call the Little Ice Age. So the late 17th century, the Stuart period, sees uh, weather really deteriorate, uh, the crops therefore uh, uh, yield less um, and there's a decline until the early 18th century oh, well at the very end of the 17th century it starts to pick up again and it reaches about that period uh, that, that glass ceiling I'm talking about the, the, the five million the 18th century sees things go way beyond that because we develop uh, methods of agriculture which are you know, the agricultural revolution which allows us to support many more lives but there's always this glass ceiling of how much life can you support on English agricultural soil uh, without having hefty imports from overseas. And it's around five to five and a quarter million people. And so we're always sort of hovering below that from the, the 13th century right the way through to the 18th. And it's the 18th we break that glass ceiling. So you know, how much food was being imported and what sort of food is being imported through this period? The sorts of food that are being imported are grain. And that's true pretty much throughout the whole period. Obviously, as, as we get further on through that period of the Middle Ages through to the early modern period, more and more different things get uh, imported, more exotica uh, gets get imported. But right back in the 1260s, with the first reference I found to London merchants deliberately importing grain from overseas, from the Hanseatic League, because of food shortages in this country. I mean, it's not very common. Obviously, the Londoners were feeding themselves rather than distributing food around the country. But that's how early it went back. And therefore, there is this um, uh, pattern of importing grain from abroad when things get really tough. And you think things did get regularly tough. It's only in the 1590s that we have our last major famine that killed 10,000 people. You know, that the famines of the 1590s um, left many, many people dead and many orphans and many homeless. And that's, that's uh, when Shakespeare's writing, supposedly our golden age. Because we'd organised things very well in the Elizabethan period, it meant it was our last major, major famine in England, obviously. When we're talking about Ireland, it's a very different story. And am I right in thinking that Shakespeare got into trouble for hoarding grain? That's correct, something like that. But there were laws uh, against uh, hoarding various uh, foodstuffs. So grain was obviously one, butter was another. I can't remember all the various ones, but yeah, many people of wealth did it. And actually it wasn't a bad idea because your comfort in a, an age which is prone to famine depends heavily on how much food you can get. And if you leave everything to the last minute to the time when a food crisis rises, which in the Tudor period was 10 to 12 years, 
then um, when the crisis arises, you can't get hold of food or you're going to pay so much more for it. So if something can be kept like butter or, or grain, then you want to have very large stocks of it. Um, I've got, there's an anecdote I can tell you about this, which is uh, when I was writing my Time Traveller's Guide to Restoration Britain, I was looking through lots of inventories of what we would call middle-class country folk. So yeomen who died with assets of 250 to 350 pounds. And I realised that in virtually every single case, uh, over three quarters of their wealth was in food. And food was stored in, in chests in their bedrooms, along with spare beds and things like that. It was everywhere throughout the house. They kept food because this was this was wealth. This was security. This was the, the guarantee that you are never going to have these famines again. And in the 1690s, 1700 period, the whole of Europe suffered the most incredibly bad famines. Two million people in France starved to death. Um, same is true for uh, Ireland, um, about the same, a tenth of the population in Scandinavia. And there was really, really bad hardship. And in England, there was virtually no um, detrimental effect because people were hoarding. They had hoarded supplies. The agricultural revolution was just getting going. But we also had a market system and a poor law system that meant the food could be distributed and redistributed where it was necessary. And there was a system in place to pay for it for the poor. So England uh, really saw no hardship in the worst famine of the end of the 17th century, the worst famine of the Little Ice Age. Uh, so when we come back to Shakespeare and his hoarding, yes, it was against the law, but it was also with one eye on the future. <laughs> So perhaps when we have all these modern news stories of people cleaning out supermarkets and hoarding pasta and toilet paper or whatever, at the slightest hint that there might be a supply problem, is that it's really just a sort of re-emergence of some deep atavistic race memory of when this really was a vital thing to do. And people are panicking now about not being able to buy food that would have been unknown to British people in this period of history. Last time you were on, we talked about what most people ate from day to day in the Middle Ages. Do we see a big change in this period? I mean, obviously, there's more international trade. We're making greater connections with India and via the spice roads to the Far East. And also, of course, Europeans are going to the Americas properly for the first time and the foodstuffs that they're bringing back from there. I mean, would they have been mainly seen as, as novelty items to start with? To start with, if we're looking at Tudor period, yes, these are novelty items. Uh, though I have to say, you find the first references to turkeys in about 1522, somewhere around then. So much surprisingly early references to turkeys, which come from the New World. Um, when we first had tomatoes in Elizabeth's reign, uh, we looked at them as table decorations and thought they were poisonous. And we looked down on the Italians and Spanish who actually ate the damn things. Um, and it was a long time before we ate, started eating tomatoes. Uh, we thought mushrooms were all poisonous. We didn't tend to eat mushrooms very much in the 16th century. And potatoes, of course, as you say, so rightly, were, were novelty items. You might have a banquet, and a banquet is a show-off event. It's not a big feast. A banquet is where you show off your, your, your exotica foods. And you might have a cooked potato displayed on a banquet for, as a curiosity. It's only at the end of the 17th century that people realise you can get greater calorific value out of farming potatoes than you can out of wheat. And therefore, poor areas in, especially the north of England, uh, the northwest of England uh, is where it starts, uh, started farming potatoes as a staple food crop. So um, people are changing what they're eating throughout this period. But also, very incrementally, their real wages are going up. So... Um, I can't remember if I used this last time we spoke, but if you think in terms of after the Black Death, when people have got a little bit more money than their ancestors had, uh, a, wor a skilled worker, someone like a carpenter, um, would earn about four and a half pence per day. And a, a chicken, for his part, would cost about four and a half, five pence per day. So you think in terms of a skilled worker, like a carpenter or a mason, earning the equivalent of one chicken per day. By Elizabeth's reign... Prices have all gone up a little bit, but the old skilled worker by then would be earning about eight pence a day and your chicken's about sixpence, so one and a quarter chickens. By the restoration period, you're probably looking at um, two chickens per day per, per, for a skilled worker. So it's not just what they're eating, it's also 
how much of the, the most desired foods they can afford to obtain. Added to that, people are printing recipe books, many more people are literate, and many more people feel they should be um, experimenting more with food as a result. So there's greater variety because of ideas as well as actually what you can buy. So people are starting to earn a bit more during this period. Are there, are there big changes between the Tudors and the Stuarts? Uh, not just the way people eat, what they wear, but how they think about the world? I think we need to get away from the idea that th things change with the Stuarts coming in, as you put it. Change is always rapid and steady. Things like fashion don't slow down very much. Um, so there's a constant redefining of how a gentleman should look, how a lady should look. And you would not have dressed in your Elizabethan doublet and hose, for example, in a hundred years later, in, in Pepys time. So there is this constant re redefinition of what a gentleman or a lady should look like. And because the court, the principal centre of fashion, is constantly changing, because its, its horizons are looking towards Paris and, and internationally, uh, because the, the highest ranking people are, are, are changing their fashions. So the next ranking people are aping them. They're casting off their old clothes to their servants and other people who then start wearing them for a while. And there is this constant turnover of, of fashion. So it's not a case of a new period comes in, therefore everybody dresses differently. That's a very... Um, I know, old-fashioned history book way of uh, presenting these things. Well, I'm doing an old-fashioned history book kind of <laughs> series. <laughs> uh, but, but we've got to remember, quite a lot of people don't really pay that much attention to who is on the throne. We've got to, yes. the, the, the communications are, uh, are such that people are living, uh, even in the 17th century, relatively isolated from London, if you're somewhere like I am on the edge of Dartmoor. You know, we're, we're 180 miles from London, um, the king is always known as an entity. Uh, and as long as he's of the right religion, no one's really that bothered about what his name happens to be um, or, or hers, as it happens. So uh, there is this sense that we are living lives which are um, not particularly governed by kings and queens. Of course, the one exception I would say is in 1660, arguably the second most dated, important date in English history, things really do change because of the monarchy. It's probably the biggest uh, a change the monarchy's affected to the society, the country, since the, since the conquest. So 1660, that marks the start of the Restoration, with Charles II coming to the throne. So in the civil wars, Charles I had gone to war with Parliament and there had been a tremendous struggle which had been taken place at a social level as well as a political one. And at the social level, the, the idea was um, who had the greater sovereignty, king or the people? And Parliament's uh, view on behalf of the people was that not only did they have sovereignty, but they also had a moral responsibility to make sure the country was uh, governed in a moral way, that people were righteous. Uh, and this Puritanism extended through to legislation that saw adultery made punishable by death, Blasphemy abolished by death, Christmas abolished, all sorts of social changes took place as a result of the English Republic. And not a, all of them were good. A lot of them were extremely repressive. At the same time as you have Puritan leaders thinking that more people should be hanged for adultery or more people should be persecuted in this way, you also have people thinking, this is not what we signed up to. This is not the way we wanted an English re uh, Republic to develop. And the economy takes a nosedive at the same time. So as the 1650s progress, people really despair of Cromwell's regime. And when Cromwell finally dies and his son very wisely refuses to uh, take over, and Cromwell himself had refused to become a king, um, we are left without a head of state in 1659. So when Charles II agrees to come back to England, agrees to come back to the country that tried his father for treason, found him guilty and hacked his head off. Now, it's no small thing. Charles II comes back. When he comes back, there is universal rejoicing. Everywhere in May 1660 was royalist. Now, the king was fated wherever he went. People were so overjoyed to have a monarch back who could provide stable leadership for the country. There had been near anarchy beforehand, and people were despairing of, of, of where 
government was going to come from. So when Charles came back and came back with some promises he couldn't fulfill, like uh, religious toleration for all, um, but some promises he could fulfill, like getting rid of the Puritan agenda, then people just were were really sincerely thrilled. Now, when he comes back, of course, he comes back with a load of aristocrats who also have been like him in exile, uh, who'd lost their fathers, normally to being executed or killed, um, lost their estates, lost their dignities. And these are the, 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 the gentlemen amongst them are the rakes who are going to put two fingers up to Puritanism forevermore and behave in a wonderfully bad way, a bit like punk rock, really, <laughs> just to uh, show that Puritanism is really dead. So 1660... The end of hanging people, some people, some normally women were hanged for adultery. The end of killing people for blasphemy, the end of the, the, the repressiveness, even if you weren't actually hanged, it still was repressive. The end of that repressive regime, the advent of a new age in which a sort of constitutional monarchy could advance and an age of huge optimism. So these fancy-dancy aristocrats coming back from Europe, becoming rakes at Charles's court, uh, I mean, were they also bringing back fashions from Europe? Today, it still seems that France and Italy are the sort of drivers of fashion, and England, well, we do our own quirky little thing, but French couture is still very highly regarded. So I know that Charles II was something of a Francophile, but I mean, were the people in the upper echelons of society deliberately dressing in a sort of anti-Puritan way? The sense of fashion changing is a lot to do with ideas and a lot to do with morals. So uh, are you going to dress in a, a provocative way, a sexy way? Is the moral climate of society um, permissive of that or is it repressive? Um, so in Elizabethan England, if we pick up uh, on the, the rise of Puritanism in Elizabeth Elizabethan times, um, there is a fashion at one point for, uh, and lasts quite a long time, for people of a religious disposition to display their Puritanism by wearing only black and white. So um, I always get asked the question of where did the idea for the rough come from? And I've got absolutely no idea whatsoever. I mean, people start having little collars and um, displaying them more and more. And of course, by the end of the 16th century, you have a foot wide crinkle cut plate around your neck um i have no idea where that but these are ideas they're not forced by technology they're enabled by the starching imported from holland the, the, the dutch pioneer starching of linen so you can have these ruffs but the, the fashion here is black and white the fashion then makes the ruffs grow bigger and then in the early 17th century the fashion for ruffs dissipates so um only old women are wearing them by 1620s, 1630s um, the fashions come and go with ideas and sensibility, morality. Technology is a minor point, except, of course, when it comes to the colours you're wearing, the dyes. So cochineal, Brazil wood, these things, um, you can't get them before we're exploiting the new world. And it takes a little while before these um, soak through all the ranks of society. But people are always aping their social superiors. So when a, a, a cardinal red is adopted as a, a fashion, uh, for example, for a dress in the 1670s, 1680s, then that colour wants to be, um, uh, other people want to get that colour to ape their social superiors. The designs, I think, are very much a matter of taste, uh, apart from the morality of how low a woman will cut her dress and how much she'll show of her arms. Women never show their legs in, in this whole, whole of this period. It's, uh, it's really considered unseemly. Unless perhaps they're on the stage. Unless they want them to be seen. <laughs> now, you talked about the, the trickle-down effect of clothes being passed on once they go out of fashion or whatever. How far did that trickle down? I mean, how much did the dress of the ordinary man or woman on the street change from the Middle Ages through to, well, even to Restoration times? I mean, it changes tremendously. I mean, the, the, the man in the Middle Ages, the 14th century worker in the field, probably only owns one or two tunics. Uh, the labourer in the field is literally sticking on a tunic over his head, doing it with a belt, he'll probably have an under tunic and a top tunic, and that's it, and that's all he'll have. And he won't start wearing breeches until the 15th century, shifting much more to something which is a lower garment on his legs and then a top doublet or tunic, whatever mm. he's wearing on top. And of course, that becomes more and more tailored as 
people, as fashion changes, as people want them tailored to make themselves look more elevated in society than perhaps they really are. At the start of this period, when everybody knows their place and there is very little social movement, especially before the Black Death, there's not much point trying to show you're of a higher status. As self-betterment and self-improvement become much more uh, possible after the Black Death, people want to show their status that much more, and therefore it's much more important how they're dressing, what signals they're sending through their clothes. So by the time of the 16th century, your, your uh, doublet and hose um, or a jerkin or something like that for your um, uh, man in the fields is, is something he needs to be seen to be wearing. I suppose there are areas of life where you see your, your labourer still wearing his smock and his hobnail boots throughout. Um, you know, carters famously are, are still wearing smocks. <clears throat> There's a good description mm. of a carter in the 17th century with a hat and straw sticking out from underneath it you know, to describe the country bumpkin. Hmm. Um, but I think that for all but the, the lowest labourers, there is a, a growing awareness they need to be seen to dress according to their station in life. And that generally requires more attention to, to clothing. And when did men start wearing what we would recognise as trousers rather than, you know, I mean, if we picture Tudor society, it's, it's men wearing tights. But when I think about the English Civil War, I picture men in baggy trousers. Uh, do, do, we, do we call them trousers? Breeches is the word for them, though, because it's quite important, the distinction. And the distinction goes back to Beau Brummel in, um, in the 18th century, 1790s. Beau Brummel uh, learns from the French Revolution that if you're wearing basically stockings and uh, breeches, uh, like a gentleman would do, you, you are looking like one of the people the French want to hack their heads off. A gentleman should look like a man of action. He should dress more like a soldier. So trousers really become de rigueur as a result of Beau Brummel's leading fashion in the 1790s in the wake of the French Revolution. So when you're looking at the 1640s and seeing breeches, yeah, there are sorts of trousers. They go down uh, to the knee and then you have uh, stockings below, below that. The breeches evolve from braids. Braids are medieval underwear. So um, in the, the 14th century, ironically, how do I know this, you might ask? You know about medieval <laughs> underwear because of illustrations of people being executed. So because they're executed in their underwear. So, um, uh, yeah, pictures of Templars being burnt allow you to do a study of underwear. How ironic is that? So braids are underwear which grow more prominent in the 14th century as so, uh, male clothing gets much more sexualized. So as the tunic gets shorter and shorter and is tailored to the body, therefore uh, a lower garment develops, the stockings develop, and then braids turn into breech. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now, you said earlier that we can't really talk about there being a sudden and distinctive change between the Tudors and the Stuarts. But I mean, one thing that does seem to be very different is this idea of men wearing elaborate wigs. It, it's a big change from this sort of short-haired Tudor look to this slightly bizarre, bewigged look. Well, what was that all about? When and why did men start wearing those wigs? That's a really good question. I mean, obviously they were wearing them in the 17th century, but when it was in the 17th century they actually started, I don't know. Pepys talks about going to a wig maker and having a, a wig made, and the wig maker told him it will cost you so much if you have to buy the hair and so much less if you use your own hair. Uh, so, use your own hair to make a wig. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, it's, uh, I mean, it is extraordinary, isn't it, the whole fashion for wigs? I suppose it takes off after about the, the, the fashion for, for rough styles out. You know, what's the next most yeah. ridiculous thing we can think of? 
they weren't really designed to look realistic, were they? I no, mean, they were definitely no, they're a status symbol. A, and yeah. hair powder in them is all about status. It's demonstrating your, your status. But you, I mean, to, to rewind a little bit there, I mean, you're sort of talking about a hairstyle for the Middle Ages. If you think about women's hairstyles in the 14th century, they go through the most extraordinary run of changes and most extraordinary designs. And in the 15th century, especially those who aped the French court, French hairstyles um, make modern things just look really boring and tedious. I mean, the, the most extraordinary designs, and um, we're talking about things being turned into columns down the side of your face or huge, great, big edifices on top of your head, mm. uh, headdresses to go with them. So I think there is a... Um, we can be lulled a bit by popular images too much into thinking there wasn't very much change because in order to signify the Middle Ages, we need to present a typical image. Otherwise, people yeah. think we don't yeah. know what age we're talking about. But actually, there's an awful lot of variety in that period. Um, and I think that's probably true uh, to a certain extent in the Tudor and, and Stuart periods too. Obviously, Puritanism doesn't do much for the variety and everybody has to look as natural as possible as God intended them to be. Mm. Um, they are meant not to use makeup and things like that if they're Puritans. Uh, though clearly some women in England still were. Um, as we get into the um, 17th century, then we get exotic female hairstyles taking off alongside a male propensity for wigs and curly, curly hair. Actually, I do remember reading somewhere that the the wearing of wigs perhaps started at the court of Louis Fourteenth to disguise baldness caused by syphilis, because... Obviously, if you wore a wig, nobody knew quite how rattled with the pox you were. And and this this idea carries on today with judges and barristers. I mean, the wig wearing carried on, not the syphilis necessarily. <laughs> but, but I mean, so, sorry, so, so to get back to Puritans, I mean, obviously, our popular image of them is, is all in black. And as you say, there's no makeup, no fancy wigs. Do you think... If Cromwell had lived longer and his son hadn't been quite so useless, and if all these different Puritan factions had managed to put their differences aside and get organised, that Puritanism might have stuck? Or were the British never going to wholeheartedly embrace it? I mean, it's not really a lot of fun, is it? Oh, yeah, I, I always say that uh, the abolition of Christmas was the final straw, really. I mean, if you want to carry support with somebody, don't abolish Christmas. <laughs> Well, we're quite a sentimental, party-loving people, aren't we? We do like our old tradition. We like pies and booze and crisps at a big Christmas blowout. I have to say, I don't think that Puritanism is really in our blood. Cholesterol, yes. Puritanism, no. And I get the feeling from when you were talking about the importance of 1660 and the return of King Charles that you're very much pro the Restoration, Ian. I'm very much pro the Restoration, yeah. I mean, I, 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 can, I can put my finger on when I realised how pro I was. When I heard a historian say, in response to something I'd said about the Adultery Act and hanging people for adultery, that it was never actually enacted. It was just a threat. I started my career as an archivist. There are documents in Devon Record Office that show that it really was real. First thing that comes to mind was the case of Richard Bounty and Susan Bounty, his wife. Richard Bounty went off to... I think it was Wiltshire for a number of years. And he came back to find his wife was pregnant. And obviously he wasn't that close to her anyway because he'd abandoned her for a couple of years. Mm. So he had her brought before the magistrates and accused of adultery. And because she was pregnant, she could hardly deny it. So the magistrates, or there would have been the size justices, passed a, a guilty sentence on her. And because she was guilty of felony, by law she had to hang. So they waited until the child was born. They hanged her and then they gave the child, to the father, the legal father, who'd been away for all those years. I don't imagine that child lived very long because I don't suppose his uh, uh, putative father wanted to look after him. We do know he was taken off to Biddeford where Susan lived, but these were tragedies. And this was a man basically using the Puritan law to get rid of his wife, to have her killed legally. Hmm. Um, and I was just so appalled by this that when then somebody said, no, it didn't really happen, it was just a threat, I got really angry <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I, I said, well, wasn't it a great thing that Charles II came back? He already had an illegitimate child by the time he became king uh, in, in, in 1660. So people could be sure that they were going to be relieved of this tyranny. And mm. 
yeah, so I realised I was on one side definitely then. I think I'd have, I would have had a lot of respect for Cromwell from what I know of him. And I think um, being a man of letters, I'd have had a lot of time for the, uh, the questioning of the king's rights. Mm. But in terms of Charles II, relieving us of the tyranny of religious ideology, I'm a, a restoration man all the way through. And you mentioned before the explosion of art and literature and fashion, which was a way of saying, up yours, Cromwell, up yours, Puritans. We're bringing back sex and music and dancing and fun. And, and people like the Rakes pushed this to extremes, sticking more than two fingers up to Puritanism. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I love the Rakes. They are just so rebellious. They've got so much spirit. I'm John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester. You know, he wrote this fantastically rude poem about the king in which he compares the length of the king's penis to his scepter and says his mistress's rules both and all that. And it's just absolutely scurrilous from beginning to end. And he accidentally gives it to the king in person. <laughs> I just think, oh, wow, how rock and roll. I mean, the uh, yeah, his, his um, play, Sodom, must be the rudest play ever written. I mean, Charles Sedley and Lord Buckhurst stripping naked on top of a cookshop in uh, Bow Street and pretending that they were going to act out all the uh, acts of lust and buggery possible. A time when buggery, of course, was punishable by death. And then Charles Sedley dips his private parts in a glass of wine, raises it and drinks a toast to the king. Uh, in his, <laughs> it was so scurrilous, so rebellious, uh, that you've really got to think... This is all actually part of a determined uh, effort to end Puritanism forever. Um, good, good luck to them. I'm glad they did. <laughs> the Restoration is seen as this huge explosion of, of particularly literature, although quite a lot of it seems to have been written during Cromwell's time, but nobody could publish it, so it was kind of suppressed. But So perhaps Charles is getting the credit for, for, for stuff that didn't come in. But, I mean, the, the number of great writers that, that flourished at the time and it wasn't just writing was it it was science as well it was that oh, whole sort of yeah no, the, this is the um, height the 17th century 1660s we're looking at the height of the scientific revolution when it's most underway on the writing front obviously we've had a fairly good crop of writers since english became a reasonably standardized language in the 16th century you know mm. shakespeare's not the only elizabethan writer of uh, greatness by the 17th century, yes, as you point out, 1650s, Milton is getting underway. And so we have Paradise Lost to look forward to. But there's the metaphysical poets, Marlowe. The, amongst the, the writers, you've got um, the, the, the great playwrights. And it's a fantastic age for playwrights. Um, and the first female professional writer as well, uh, Afra Ben, starts mm. uh, work. Painting, similarly, portraiture just takes off. The first female professional portraitures. It. It, it, it's all a cultural explosion as a result of uh, the king coming back. And rather than the theatres all being closed down as they had been under Puritanism, the London stage opens up with more vigour than ever before. And we have women finally on the stage from 1662. And some of the, 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 the actresses and actors are pretty much household names by the end of the 17th mm. century. So there's an absolute explosion in cultural life. Uh, it's set free uh, as a result of 1660. The other thing I'd add, also, it's not just the way people are choosing to do things on day-to-day -day basis, but everybody can imagine this as a contrast. You think of your typical London townhouse, three stories high normally, flat-fronted, normally brick, probably sash windows, um, possibly, if it's an early one, a balustrade on top, um, with a street outside with a camber on it and drains going down the side. That's what London houses were like after the, the Great Fire. The pattern for building that London townhouse is uh, very much product of the 17th century. What did the equivalent look like 100 years earlier in the 16th century? Well, it was timber framed, it was cantilevered out over an alley or a street, it was dark, the drain in the middle of the street would be full of refuse. A totally different thing. No glass in the windows, probably, that Elizabethan house. Maybe if it was a high-status one, but no. We, our, our houses just see such a revolution over this period from Elizabeth's reign through to Queen Anne's. I mean, is that partly because of the, the fire and people thinking we need to maybe not build our houses half of wood? It's, it's very much uh, uh, to do with the Great Fire of London. For a number of years, um, there had been no building allowed west of Drury Lane. Queen Elizabeth wouldn't allow any 
uh, building west of Drury Lane because she didn't want any houses built any nearer her palace, a Whitehall, mm. uh, than that. Charles I especially starts to give licenses for aristocrats to develop that area. So as long as they're wealthy enough and pay him enough and are going to build streets that look like palaces, flat-fronted, well-proportioned, beautiful houses, then he's more relaxed than Elizabeth was. As a result of this, we have these plans for what good housing should look like, standardised designs for what the king will allow in the West End as it's growing. And these are given impetus by Inigo Jones after he uh, sets out a Covent Garden in the 1640s. And after the Great Fire, of course, this is how we develop. We have these plans, these notions of what good planning should look like as a result of the kings having these restrictions on um, building west of Drury Lane. So that, that, that model is applied immediately across the whole of London. So 13,200 houses have been destroyed in September 1666. And within 10 years, they've been replaced by about 8,700 good new houses. And they're just such an example to the rest of the country. I mean, one in six people in this period, late 1600s, lives for some period of that part of their life in London. London's mm. more dominant than it's ever been before or ever since. A greater proportion of big city dwellers live in London ever before or since. So the London designs get taken out across the whole country. It's uh, really a, a, a momentous event, the rebuilding of London after the Great Fire. So that's when the West End was created. And was it called the West End then? Later on, not immediately, but it quickly it becomes because aristocrats want to live in these wonderful new houses the further west london goes the bigger and bolder the squares and the uh, the, mm. the more ambitious the architecture so the west end as opposed to um old london as it were uh, and then the east end where you don't go if you're an aristocrat uh, are very polarized so uh, certainly by the 18th century. Um, the visitors to London in the 18th century who refer to the West End. So you mentioned the economy crashing during Cromwell's time. How quickly did it recover when Charles II came to the throne? I mean, did it actually recover or, or was it just the feel-good factor? Presumably there was enough money around to rebuild London after the Great Fire and put up all these wonderful new buildings. The kings in the late 17th century were lucky in the fact that the English economy was pretty steadily growing. It was growing for lots of reasons. Um, the agriculture revolution was beginning to get underway. People were just starting to build canals and look at uh, improvement of assets. Um, but also enclosure was taking place. Because all our enclosure acts date from the 18th century and the early 19th century, we tend to sort of think in terms of enclosure being an 18th century thing. Really, a quarter of England was enclosed in the 17th century. By enclosure, I mean the old, big open fields which had been communally farmed and had assets in common. Really, I mean, little communes across the whole country were taken in hand by the landowner and then divided between the biggest tenants on, on that manner. So rather than being um, two or three large open fields where everybody had a little strip here and there and everybody used the, the communal cattle to, to plough the land and everybody had rights of grazing on the common. Rather than these communal things, these then became patchwork of yeah. fields. And, of course, if you only had one or two strips, you were squeezed out. You couldn't live off this little field because you no longer had the communal cattle, you no longer had the communal grazing. Um, you had to basically sell up and head off into town. Either that or become a labourer for somebody else. But this also meant at the same time, although terrible destruction across the whole of England um, in, in terms of the social impact, it did mean a much more efficient form of farming. And it did mean that um, uh, when farming improvements became impossible in the late 17th century and early 18th century, they could be imposed. You didn't have to um, get everybody on the manor to uh, agree to them. So wealth was coming in for those reasons. There also has to be added, we're taking in wealth from the rest of the world because Charles II had acquired part of India with his marriage, uh, part of North Africa as well, though he didn't hang on to that for very long. And so we were beginning to um, see the wealth uh, flow into the country from a nascent empire. Well, and presumably also the, the slave trade is, is flourishing at this point. The slave trade, I have to say, was flourishing in both directions. British people were being, English people, this is, and some Irish, were being kidnapped and sold as slaves in uh, North Africa. But we were, to a far greater extent, trading slaves into the plantations 
by which I mean Jamaica, Caribbean, America. Mm. How much money is kind of coming back from those uh, the plantations in the Caribbean? Very large amounts of money. There's very strong incentives for people to get involved in you know, the production of cotton and tobacco. I mean, it's tobacco that really saves America in the earlier days in the 17th century, and it's obviously a very, very big business for them. Chocolate as well. That's another one of the things uh, that really struck me when I was writing Time Traveller's Restoration, how the, the secret of making chocolate it was not known in England before we captured Jamaica in 1655. Um, when we obviously captured the recipe for the, the chocolate cakes that you would crumble into your whatever you wanted to put it into with a with a milk or water or, or port wine as uh, Samuel Pepys did, um, your 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 chocolate you crumble up. So we actually captured chocolate when we acquired Jamaica. Think of um, all the various things, spoils of war we've had over the, the, the mm. centuries and how chocolate is probably one of the ones that's most appreciated to this day. Also, this is the age in which we get coffee, we get tea being brought in, tea coming from China, of course. So culturally, we're expanding and we're, we're bringing in wealth. And the whole world is actually trading with itself. I mean, mentioning China there. So it's not just us exploiting in an imperial sense. It's us you know, trading and encouraging trade throughout the whole world. So just to wrap up, now you touched on this earlier, talking about some of the scurrilous things that the Rakes wrote. And this whole idea of a release from the repression of the Cromwellian regime, when you had what can be characterised as a sort of military dictatorship or a hardline religious dictatorship, the two of which often go hand in hand, it has to be said. And when Charles comes to town, he seems to grasp the fact that people do need this release. They need to be able to express what they're feeling and that allowing them to do that won't necessarily bring the whole of society crashing down and the end of his rule. I think that one of the things that the British have been good at is, is laughing at themselves, laughing at their superiors, enjoying satire, enjoying poking fun at the pompous and the powerful. And the likes of Putin and Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping in China, they, they, they get this wrong. They can't bear to be made fun of. Charles II seems to have sussed that actually it's okay if someone writes a scurrilous rhyme about you or draws a rude picture. It's not going to tip you off the throne. Quite the opposite. In the end, it's the rigid, humourless rulers who come unstuck. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I, I myself have a very positive opinion of Charles II. I mean, he's thought of as pretty much a bad boy, the Merry Monarch, as uh, Rochester called him. But if you think about it, you know, he had to endure those years in exile in France, pretty much a ridiculed figure because he'd lost his kingdom. What was he going to do to get it back? Well, there's nothing he could do in the 1650s. He must have been scarred by those years and the people around him similarly scarred. And yet when he comes back, he has this strength. He has this confidence. And the confidence is exactly what you're talking about here. He is not going to stamp down anybody who criticises him. Yeah, he's going to banish John Wilmot for writing that poem for another year. But um, <clears throat> he knows when to resist and when to give way. So there are two occasions when he wants to bring in toleration of Catholics. Uh, I think the years in question are 1662 and 1672. And on both occasions, he is told... You might have promised you'd do this, but you cannot do this. The English people will not tolerate uh, um, the toleration of Catholics at that time. And he knows when to back down. He knows, like, like the, the, the tree that sways in a high wind, mm. he knows not to resist it too rigidly, otherwise he will lose out. And it's because of Charles II's political genius that a Catholic monarch, James II, is able to inherit. I mean, we have our division of Whigs and Tories because of the question of whether James II should become king because he was a, known to be a Catholic. And the, your, your Tories believe in the king should be uh, king no matter what, and the Whigs were uh, of a different disposition. The fact he became king, even though he was deeply unsuited for the, the role, is because Charles II had not just restored the monarchy in being a monarch, he'd restored the whole prestige of the monarchy, the value of the monarchy. I mean, he's such a scientific patron, a, an artistic patron, a literary patron, a patron of theatre. He, he is the modern model monarch, if you know what I mean. Um, 
I don't think the monarchy would have lasted as long as it has done if it hadn't been for Charles II. Well, I think there's a lot that modern leaders could learn from him. <laughs> yeah. But it's best not to make all your mistresses duchesses. <laughs> well, we would under Boris Johnson, we would have had quite a lot of duchesses. <laughs> Allegedly. Um, Ian, thank you so much for coming back. Um, and maybe you can come and join us. We can look at the area covered in your final Time Travellers book, which is the Regency period. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd be delighted to. I mean, uh, Regency is uh, a period I actually can say with hand on heart I wouldn't have mind living in. I mean, all the previous periods I've written about, I'm so horrified by which I'm very glad I don't live in those periods. But the Regency, I find enormously stimulating period. So, yeah, and... Regency, I mean, from the French Revolution through to the time of George IV's death. So 1789 through to, to 1830. Uh, yeah, I'd very much like to talk about that. You did make the restoration sound quite alluring. <laughs> <laughs> OK, yeah, it's just the diseases, life expectancy being mm. in the 30s. You know, if I'd had life expectancies they had in the, the 1660s, 1670s, I'd have been dead for the last 20 years. So... Uh, Mm, particularly if you'd behaved like some of the rakes. Well, and, uh, John Wilmot only got 33. So. Yes, <clears throat> riddled um, with yeah. all forms of sexual disease. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being my guest again on Willy Willy Harry Stee, Ian. I think you've made it very clear why you were excited enough by the restoration to want to write about it in your Time Traveller's Guide. What isn't there to be excited by, by the Restoration? <laughs> we go from a Puritan England, a England of repression, of dourness, of, uh, well, yeah, hardship and uh, moral bashing, basically, to one of exuberance, artistic achievement, um, brilliance, a degree of liberation for women, and uh, I just so much fun. So that was the always excellent Ian Mortimer, author of, among many other books, The Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England, to Elizabethan England, to the Restoration and to the Regency. Make sure you come back and join me and another great historian on the next episode of Willy Willy Harry Stee. Follow the podcast now to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2024.